I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. Right now, I think we need writers who know the difference between production of a market commodity and the practice of an art. Books, you know, they're, they're not just commodities. The profit motive is often in conflict with the aims of art. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art and very often in our, our, art, the art, the art of words. Art of words. friends and enemies. It's episode 24 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy as always. And uh, this week we want to do a little bit of a change of pace from our normal gloomy, depressing content, our, our normal tone that is always focusing in on everything that's wrong with the world, which, you know, it, it's an endless well of resources uh, and things to talk about. Uh, but I think like we were all chatting about it, like Jeremy, Ed and I, and we were like, what would it look like to try to do something a bit different, to try to look at, you know, what would utopianism for the left look like, right? And, you know, we kind of got into this in like our conversation with Aaron Beninov around his book and the way that like, you know, science fiction and, and leftist utopianism has really influenced his work. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've made like so many jokes before that, like, you know, I've, I've been berated for being dystopian long enough that now I'm just, I'm just pivoting to utopianism, right? Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> right. I mean, what, like, uh, at, at the very least are the prospects uh, for, for, for people like us, you know, financially, politically, mentally, 
uh, as newly reformed techno utopians would would almost certainly be higher, right, Ed? I mean, like, uh, you know, in, in a time when it feels like optimism or acquiescence are the only reasonable uh, options that are offered mm-hmm. to us, uh, you know, and everybody loves a good conversion story, right? Everyone loves a good mm-hmm. convert that, uh, you know, they, uh, I, I was a critic, but then I saw the, then I saw the light, you know, I, I saw the right. light. <laughs> I was on the road to Damascus and then uh, Jesus spoke to me and now That's I'm a communist, right? right? <laughs> but, but, but now I'm a utopian, right? I'm going from dystopianism right. to utopianism. I tried to actually, you know, sit with that idea and take it a little seriously, right? And I really tried to ask myself, um, what would it mean to do utopianism in a way that doesn't demand abandoning the values and principles and goals that led me to being this like forever cynic slash critic? In other words, what would utopianism, um, what kind of utopianism is even available for the anti-capitalist left, um, for anti-capitalist struggle? I, I don't know. I mean, it's like a really hard question to to ask, right? And it's a really, it's a really odd thing to think too, uh, when it feels like, you know, dystopia is an overdrive, you know, is utopia even, even possible um, in, in, a, in a time like now? It does feel like we are just like in a hell world and like the only options are to mitigate and manage uh, the way in which various crises unfold or to submit to the gloom and doom and, you know, conversations I've had with people, it's like, well, obviously you can't do that because then you can't have like a healthy enough frame of mind to try to make reasonable progress towards improving the world. But also, like, if you delude yourself, then maybe you're, like, not going to do the things that might be necessary to uh, shift or to, you know, organize or to in one way impact or one way or another impact the situation and, and yield a change, which I think is why, you know, for today's episode, starting off with Eric Olin Wright's uh, exploration of real utopias is a really good way to start thinking about what our imaginary needs to be um, within this hell world. And, you know, what kind of ways we can look at what exists and discard it um, and not fall for the trap of past historical failures, not fall for the trap of like, you know, deterministic viewpoints or uh, ideological baggage that comes to us in capitalism. And instead like really think about how we can make a real utopia or at least how to think properly about thinking about a real utopia. Cause you know, we may, we can't immediately come up with like a system on our own, but we can work together, right. To think about ways to escape traps and the pitfalls of constant years of barraging of propaganda from people who are, you know, arguing against reform, arguing that, you know, the, the cure would be worse than the disease, right. That, that you can acknowledge, as you know, Eric Olin Wright talks about that, like, you know, there are people who there might be a unanimous agreement among, you know, sociologists or among commentators that most forms of human suffering and, you know, deficits in human flourishing are specifically caused by institutions and social structures that exist. And that the debate then becomes whether transforming them uh, is the way to yield radically in radical improvements in in human flourishing and reduction in human 
suffering, right? Is it yeah. the case that if you mitigate or intervene that you actually improve the world versus just like, you know, maybe this is as good as it gets and we just have to figure out how to uh, tinker with the edges. Right. right. And I'm not ready to, uh, to give in to that idea that this is as good as it gets because that, that's, you know, we talk so much about the way that our political imagination has been, has been limited and constrained in a lot of really intentional ways. And, you, you know, you bring up, so Eric Olin, right? That was like one of the, the, the touchstones when I actually started thinking about this episode, when I started thinking about what, you know, what he calls real utopia or real utopianism might look like. So Eric Olinwright um, is, a, is a late sociologist who wrote this really great essay called Transforming Capitalism Through Real Utopias. And we'll throw a link to that in the episode description. But it was this essay that really like kind of summarized a whole body of work that he'd been working on for a long time. Like he's, he's an analytical Marxist sociologist. He, you know, his work focused on, especially later in his life, on this question of what are alternatives, right? He's, and in this essay, he lays out like such a strong case for um, what he calls vibrant alternatives to the failures of capitalism and alternatives that are, you know, imminently achievable, um, you know, rather than, uh, as he puts it, the quote, the need for a vibrant alternative to capitalism is as great as ever. Yet the particular institutional arrangements that have come to be associated with alternatives, socialism rooted in state control of the economy, are seen as incapable of delivering on their promises. Instead of being viewed as a threat to capitalism, talk of socialism now seems more like archaic utopian dreaming, or perhaps even worse, a distraction from dealing with tractable problems in the real world. And he wants to uh, dismiss that, that whole criticism, that any, any talk of socialism as archaic utopian dreaming, because, you know, for him, and I think he's right, that it, all that serves to do is to limit our imagination, limit our conversations, but also limit our focus on understanding that these things that he calls real utopias um, already do to some degree exist, right? Like for me, you know, Wright constructs in this paper um, a, a hyper detailed framework, you know, true to his roots as an analytical Marxist, really going <laughs> through uh, propositions and foundations mm -hmm. and moral mm -hmm. principles, you know, really constructing this, this, this framework and this argument about what, what real utopias are and how they can transform capitalism and what they have to be based in, um, you know, in, in terms of social science, in terms of ethics, in terms of political economy. Um, but for me, like the most useful lesson from Wright's essay is his conviction that the work of finding real utopias need not rely on pure speculation or hopium, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the seeds for real utopias also already exist in the world. Um, and so in thinking about how to materialize them, we have to look far and wide for, for inspiration and arm ourselves with every weapon, every idea at our disposal. One of the things that I was thinking about in terms of this, like, this reality of utopianism was also thinking about the fact that like, uh, like in, in a sense, we do live in a utopia, right? Because utopia is in the eye of the beholder. It's odd to think that not only 
our utopia is possible, but they also already exist in the sense that like every dystopian world is also utopian for some and quotidian for right. others, right? It's all about like mm-hmm. that, de- the degrees and distribution of that. You know, I think about the, the famous William Gibson quote where, he's, where he says, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. We could change that and say, utopia is already here. They're just unevenly produced and distributed, right? Is it a techno utopia or is it a digital dictatorship? Like, like when Wright, Wright's formulation of the real utopia, right, is that the utopias represent, you know, visions of alternatives to dominant institutions that embody the deepest aspirations for the world. And in, and in his framework, right, it's supposed to be a world in which all people have access to conditions to live flourishing lives, right? And real then meaning, how do we propose the alternatives that pay attention to the problems uh, of unintended consequences, to self-destructive dynamics, to difficult dilemmas of normative trade-off, or a narrow group in our society, right? Uh, you know, for a narrow group of capitalists in particular, um, the utopia is not one where as many people are flourishing, right? But a but a small sect are flourishing, right? And that the dominant institutions are arranged in such a way that it preserve it, whether that means that the vast majority are suffering or whether that means X amount of people are suffering such that there's no violent discontinuity or revolt or uprising and that the real utopia also requires that you shut off for, you know, for this dystopia, shut off, um, alternatives or prospects that other people could pursue, right? You know, so real dystopian, we might say, right? You know, the world that exists as it is, is one where emancipatory ideals in one way or another are pushed away, dismissed, undermined, uh, made to be viewed with contempt or cynicism, even when there is an awareness among the population, among the people hurling this criticism that there's resonance and there's a and, and there's a real urgency to the idea that we should have a world where more people flourish and more people have their needs met. And I think that going through, you know, of course, Owen Wright's essays like focus on utopias, but I think that's also an interesting thing that you talk about the, that, you know, another flip side of the imaginary is that the world we live in is very much like a playground, right, for the enemy. Um, mm-hmm. So the question, the question is how to get constantly when we're thinking about moral principles as uh, Olin Wright is, right? When we think about moral principles to judging institutions as they exist, when we're using them to think about how we're going to talk about the diagnosis and the critique of the existing institutions, when we're thinking about a way of alternatives that are open to us in response to the critique or a theory of how we transform these things and realize these alternatives, also remember that like for that small group, there is ample reason to resist at each stage and to also think about when our apprehensions, our, our confusion, or our uh, reticence is so much, is not really ours, but theirs, right? Subliminated or uh, incorporated or, or an otherwise, um, you know, just, you know, integrated into the way that we're thinking without uh, being cognizant of it. When I was thinking about utopianism and trying to take that seriously, it really did dawn on me. So like when we use terms like neoliberalism or technocracy, for example, you know, it's always as critics, right? We're always like 
you know, deriding the failures of these projects and the consequences of these ideologies um, and their associated industries? How could systems like this that exist solely to force like every aspect of human life, the human condition to conform with economic rationality or engineering solutions. Like how could they survive, let alone thrive when it's so obvious to anybody paying attention, um, their detrimental impacts. And then it dawned on me, I was like, oh, that's because these are utopian projects, right? Like, you know, for, for these people that, 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 are thriving in these systems and are perpetuating them. This is their idea of utopianism. And it, and they've done so by like infiltrating the minds of decision makers, force feeding it to the public, right? What we experience as the aftermath of dystopia is to them the ascension of a utopia. could feel kind of defeatist right like like shit like their utopia is already here like how how can we even fight back against these dominant projects but i want to flip that i want to argue that there's actually power in seeing that the world is already dominated by grand utopian projects because it means utopias are possible right it doesn't mean that you you know like if we trace back the um, like the etymology of the word utopia. And Eric Olin Wright does this really well in his essay. You know, he's not the only person to kind of trace this back, but I, I feel like it's a forgotten etymology um, that, it, you know, it comes from, you know, the, 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 the term utopia comes from Thomas More, who's this like 17th century writer, um, he, his book called Utopia. And he meant it as this like pun, right? Like, Utopia, uh, topia in, in the Greek is, you know, from telpos, it means a place, but the, the prefix there, you, um, is pronounced the same way in English, but it's a pun on two different pref- like two different Greek prefixes, one meaning um, good, so good place, but then one meaning no or nowhere, right? So a nowhere place. So the whole idea baked into utopia is that it's a, it's a good place that could never exist, that exists nowhere. If we take that and build off of it, if we understand that the world is already kind of um, dominated by these utopias, then it means that they do exist, right? But, but they're not always good, for everybody. And I, I think that's a, I think that gets to a basic criticism of something like socialism too, right? Is that the people that are always critiquing socialism are the ones that would feel threatened by that particular utopian project, just in the same way that the way we critique um, capitalism or neoliberalism or technocracy is because we feel threatened, rightfully so, by those particular projects. That's like a mental thing that we have to break through um, as well, is that in thinking about what a real utopia might look like and in thinking about utopian projects, they will always have their critiques and they will always have their enemies. But the, pro- but the, the goal needs to be to build a utopia for the many, not a utopia for the few, which is what we currently live within, right? A utopia for the few. I think there's no harm in it. I'm not saying just because totalizing systems don't really exist, we shouldn't sit around thinking about them. I think we should. 
utopias are bad if they get automatic weapons. Right, and I think that's why, you know, Eric Olin writes, I say here, and also his book, really important because, you know, he, he emphasizes the importance of talking about alternatives, but also that one way we can think about the framework you know, he provides us with, you know, as we've talked about these moral principles where you think about equality, right? And whether a system is, is achieving socially just ends where everyone has equal access to material and social conditions to live and to flourish, in addition to questions about democracy and sustainability. But I think also there are points that he raises about how it, it may be just as important to think about what he calls the anti-capitalist potential, right, of various Mm -hmm. uh, things that exist, right, you know, and whether or not, as was the case historically with capitalism emerging from within the feudal system, uh, these various things have anti-capitalist potential that we can leverage into creating from the margins of the capitalist economy a socialist alternative, right, you know, Things like participatory budgeting, right, you know, where urban budgets are instead of formulated by technical experts, formulated by citizens, popular assemblies and voted on by, you know, the public largely like they have been in the Brazilian city of Porto Alegre in the early 90s when the Brazilian Workers Party dominated. Uh, neighborhood assemblies throughout the city were, you know, empowered to debate budgetary priorities. They proposed specific kinds of projects. They chose delegates for a citywide budget council. They brought all the proposals from different neighborhood assemblies together. They made a coherent city budget out of it. And then this was a model that, you know, was exported to other cities in Latin America, uh, to some city council districts in New York and Chicago. Uh, this, I think, is a good example of a sort of anti-capitalist potential thing where the goal is, as he talks about also in other places, you know, creating institutions that endure in the way of social empowerment, right? In creating, you know, a capacity for people to control um, collectively uh, economic resources, activities, political power that also spawns from them, right? Workers' cooperatives are another examples, right? If workers have more control and democracy in the workplace, um, in of itself is a tool that has anti-capitalist potential because it allows workers in that workplace, but in other places as well, to um, think more, not only about grabbing uh, an equal share of the organization, equal voice in decision-making and power from investors and private you know, blocks, but also thinking about what other parts of the economic, um, you know, machinery should be democratized. But of course, as we're saying, like, you know, these things are, these are each in of themselves, they're not going to do the trick, but that we should be thinking about them in conjunction with one another. We need to be constantly on the lookout as one part of the strategy for achieving a real utopia, things with anti-capitalist potential and figuring out ways that we can radically expand them ways that we can support them, ways we can protect them, ways we can ensure they flourish, whether that's public libraries, whether that's initiatives like Wikipedia, co-ops, whether that's allowing unions to have more control over capital as it is, you know, related to their pension funds, to, you know, health insurance, or whether that is, you know, displacing private equity investment or loans. You know, there are all sorts of ways Eric Eric Olin Wright is interested in trying to say um, that maybe we're not at the stage, right, where we can immediately transform, um, 
the economy, and we also are not interested in uh, having capitalism hum along in the name of some transitional project. But there are immediate things that can be done that radically do improve the lives of people within them and are antithetical to capitalist logics and can create spaces where people have breathing room to do even more radical things, right? It's not that 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 moves like a worker a cooperative or participatory budgeting are not supposed to be holding states where it's like, all right, now we've achieved, you know, this specific political form. They're supposed to also be places to get capital off of your back, right? And and private, you know, uh, forces or political power that's uh, antithetical to you off your back, so you can then wage even more ambitious assaults on you know, uh, protected centers of political and economic and social uh, power motivated by capital. Exactly, exactly. Like, I think that's really getting to the core of uh, this idea of real utopias is that on one hand, it's something that has real, that really improves the material conditions of people in in the now, right? In the immediate, Um, you know, as you were saying, really gets gets capital off their back, uh, you know, lessens some of the, the pressure and strain that they're feeling, right? Things that really actually improve people's lives. But baked into them as well, that's, and that's, this is the kind of utopian aspect, is that within them is also a radical potential. And I think that's really important because I think when we think about utopianism um, on the left, we do kind of like hamstring ourselves by constantly having to always think about like, what is the fully formed project um, or program that we are going to implement, right? What is the like highly detailed architectural blueprint that we're going to implement? Um, so it is this kind of like from zero to a hundred, is, is I think that's the way that we often think about utopianism. And, uh, you know, that has its place, right? The, the calls for full communism now have their place um, as right. this kind of uh, uh, idea of like, all right, like that's, you know, that's the state that we're, uh, state in many respects of the word, that we are mm-hmm. uh, striving <laughs> to, to reach, right. right? I also feel like those kinds of demands for a full program also serve to sap uh, the energy of social movements, right? Because the, the people you always hear um, those demands from are the, the cynical pragmatist already in power, right? The cynical capitalist already in power who take every critique of the system as, uh, you know, and, re- and in response, they say, well, what's your alternative, right? What, what are you, how, are you, how are you going to organize things? Um, and so in that demand for a full program, saps our energy, right? Because we feel like we always have to bring demands for a full program, even mm-hmm. though um, those demands will never actually be taken seriously, right? And they'll never be mm-hmm. implemented um, in full. And so really, the real utopianism is on, is on one hand a kind of recognition that there needs to be these kind of intermediate points, it, you know, maybe in a piecemeal way, but we string it together through a political project. Uh, and, and within that is this kind of radical potential to constantly keep our momentum going, to constantly be chipping away at the system as it is so that we can build a better system in its place. There's a part near the end of the well, middle point of the essay, right, where he, talks, where he starts talking about this, you know, sort of general framework 
for an analysis of real, real utopian alternatives to capitalism, right? So I think one of the really interesting moves he, what he does here that I think is important, like we've been talking about, to think about real utopias, right? Simply by stating, you know, of course, there are three sort of idealized types of economic structures that we might be able to think of, right? Capitalism, statism, and socialism. Uh, and their differences are more or less along the lines in which, you know, how power, what type of power is controlling economic activity, right? And his, you know, conceptualization of this talks about how it's also important to think about how each system, each economic structure should be really also understood as a hybrid, right? There are different forms of power interacting. And saying that an economy is, for example, capitalist is really like a quick way of saying, uh, quote, it's an economic hybrid con combining capitalist status and socialist economic relations within which capitalist relations are dominant, right? You know, from this conception, right, when we're, we're thinking about structural hybrids, we can use that to analyze whatever units of analysis we are thinking in, firms, sectors, regional economies, national economies, the global economy, and use that to then say within this unit of analysis uh, the possibility of socialism, you know, quote, depends on our ability to enlarge and deepen the socialist component of the hybrid and weaken the capitalist and statist components. And that means instead of it simply being, are we, like you said, endpoint capitalist or endpoint socialist, the hybrid form of capitalism, what are some of the pressure points that it needs and relies on? What are some of the pressure points that are the most vulnerable? What are some of the most uh, pressure points that are the most resistant um, or resilient? And then what are the pressure points that we can act on um, and undermine or transform or use to, as we were talking about, create spaces where more vulnerabilities emerge and where less resilience is possible on the, in terms of the capitalist, right? And, you know, a capitalist empowerment, and in one diagram, he talks about how capitalist empowerment would center, you know, have economic power, you know, economic activity centering on investment, on production, on the uh, distribution of goods and services that, and, and in the name of, you know, private ownership and in the name of, you know, capitalist uh, domination of the modes of social coordination, right? the way that resources are distributed, the way that activities are decided, the way that politics is run, right? Um, but if we're interested in a, in a system where so the name of socialism, right, the question then becomes, where do we intervene when it comes to how economic power is constituted? Where do we intervene where social power is constituted? Where do we intervene where state power is you know, constituted, right? Uh, can economic power be used to substitute social power that might otherwise be absent? You know, he uses an example of uh, the unrestrained use of donations by corporations and the wealthy to fund political parties, right? Political parties matter, right? They're the vehicles for selecting state officials who directly exercise state power, but the social power is mobilized, but the social power mobilized by political parties is subordinated to the exercise of economic power. And we and these are the sort of ways in which thinking about these units of analyses, you know, he proposes thinking about the ways in which specific power relations form building blocks of these hybrid economic structures and where we can focus energy on creating uh, alternatives, amplifying uh, anti-capitalist potential and creating institutions that empower people either by using examples 
that already persist, examples that have failed, or examples that uh, ultimately are going to be experiments, right? That we're not sure how they're going to turn out, but have an inkling or an, an understanding or an instinct that might lead us in one way or another to, you know, to, to press on. Two quotes uh, from that Eric Olin Wright essay as well that I think will help form off around the, uh, the foundation as, as you know, we get into a little bit later in the episode, some actual examples that we're going to bring to the table of what we think um, real utopias that are happening now and, and inspirations that we should take from them, right? So on one hand, Eric Olin Wright says, quote, a real utopian holds on to emancipatory ideals without embarrassment or cynicism, but remains fully cognizant of the deep complexities and contradictions of realizing those ideals. And I think that's, I think that's important because on one hand, it, 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 it can be kind of uh, em- embarrassing to put forth utopianism, right? Because um, it, it could seem like you're not taking seriously the existing order of the world, right? Or the existing right. state of affairs, that, that you are instead, uh, you know, you've got your head in the clouds and you're simplifying away all of the problems, uh, everything that exists, so that you can then um, imagine and project your astral project yourself into this other alternative universe where utopianism holds. And Eric Olin Wright is saying, no, 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 like we cannot afford to be embarrassed or cynical to put forth these ideas. But on the other hand, that idea that we have to remain cognizant of the complexities and the contradictions, right? That like, you know, if we're going to be, and we still must be, uh, you know, a good materialist analysis of the world, that does rem- that does mean wrestling with the fact that there are a lot of complexities, and the fact that, like, you know, anything that we might put forth as uh, as an example of a real utopia or as inspiration of real utopianism um, is not at the same time saying that it's all perfect, right? Because by definition, a real, a real utopia is not perfect and it's not um, completely programmatic and it's, it, it, you know, it's, not, it's not even necessarily airtight. It's up for criticism and it's up for debate. And I think that's, you know, that's something important as well. The other quote there that I also want to take from Eric Olin Wright is, quote, in the practical world of struggling to create the social conditions for human flourishing, it is important to be a pragmatic idealist. Now, I find that really interesting because I don't know about you, but I I spend a lot of time railing against the pragmatism as an ideology, right? But that's because the way it's marshaled now by, you know, all the so-called progressive policy wonks, you know, the democratic... They shall not be named. (laughs) (laughs) The democratic think tankers, you know, uh, you know, these people... I mean, I'll name some of them, right? <laughs> Fucking like yeah, go Matt, Ig- <laughs> Matt Iglesias, right? Uh, the whole Progressive Policy Institute, this like centrist Democrat think tank. Oh, right? we'll do like, an episode on them one day. <laughs> and, they, yeah, and they call themselves radically pragmatic, right? That's their slogan. Right. Uh, like all of these careers and think tanks basically come out of well, with, with someone like Obama as their kind of like figurehead, right? Like he is the God King of pragmatism, of progressive pragmatism or radical pragmatism. And we see where that gets us, right? Like so often pragmatism actually just means essentially an ideology that says, yeah, I also don't like the status quo, but also we 
can we not all agree it's impossible to do anything about it, right? Right. <laughs> and and, and that, that's what pragmatism has meant. And I like Eric Olin Wright's kind of injunction here that we have to reclaim that idea of a pragmatic idealist, right? We have to insert our idealism into a pragmatic mode of action. And that means looking for things like real utopias, right? Looking for uh, seeds of utopianism, seeds of anti-capitalist struggle, as you were saying so well, Ed, things that have radical potential built into them. I don't know about you, but I'm rarely accused of being an optimist. <laughs> um, uh, you know, in reading Wright's essay, it really did get me thinking and looking at the world, you know, and looking at what's going on and what's happening and what's, what's recently happened mm -hmm. um, and trying to frame it in terms of um, are these real utopias that we can draw inspiration from? I think that's why Wright's essay, especially towards the end when he, you know, tries to think about when he's thinking through these configurations is, you know, something people should revisit, especially with his book. Because, you know, as we talk about, right, the goal is also to constantly be on the lookout for anti-capitalist potential to amplify, right? But there also will and can be points in which transformation happens, right? Transformation on large scale is going to look like democratizing the entire economy, in one way or another through configurations that allow individuals and collective groups to displace the power of private concentrations of power and also uh, to displace uh, concentrations of power within state apparatuses that are dominated, right, by groups that were competing with control over resources and economic resources and political power with, right? But transformation... Uh, meaning, you know, the realization of a hybrid that emphasizes socialism and is dominated by socialist dimensions is one where I think it is more feasible within this framework than thought of as uh, simply a series of struggles to get like the right amount of people in or the right amount of concessions or through a tedious transformations at the Democratic Party, what have you, whatnot, right? Because the limit, it should be thought of as like, you know, the political arena is not the only arena, right? Like capitalism does not solely depend on the electoral as, as a core structure in this hybrid, right? Because uh, bourgeois modes. democracy props up capitalism <laughs> in a lot of ways, right. right? You know, like that there are ways to resist it outside of the political system, but still within like the market that is gobbling up more and more of our lives. There are ways to resist it within the way that individuals relate to each other outside of the market, but still moved by market logic. And that each one of these battles and victories, if, if one is realized, are just as important and maybe more so than trying to battle it out within or on the grounds of narrow, narrow policy battles between our, our friends in the wonk world or in wonk world or in the swamp or in the blob and whatnot and whatnot, you know, I think that doesn't displace any of it might have, but just to be constantly thinking about, you know, there are ways to do it without being involved in that fight. You know, there's anti-capitalist potential and for example, organizing communities to take back power. That is immediately a concern of theirs, right? Is that housing? Mm -hmm. Is that their workplace? Is that, again, you know, the budgetary process for their city? Is it how healthcare is accessed, right? Is it the information that they have access to? Is it 
the way in which power is routed into, into the area? Is it the way in which resources are diverted into the area to maintain what normally would be municipal services? Like there are a lot of ways in which people can see a problem, organize collectively, build something that centers the collective from then on out, which and successfully pull power out of like a private concentration and also sustain itself by now empowering them to be more invested in preserving these resources, preserving the flourishing, preserving improvement of the standard of living or the quality of a service or a good that also lend itself towards undermining, you know, the capitalist and status dimensions that we've been talking about. And this transformation also, as Olin Wright talks about, has a lot of different forms. There can be ruptures, uh, where suddenly some huge, you know, event, whether it's a war or a revolution disrupts things. There can be interstitial ones, right, where uh, things that do not immediately serve some threat to dominant classes and, and, and elites eventually do because of experiments, because of large coalitions working together eventually and, 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 and pushing a change, right? Um, eroding the logic or the, the, the compelling power of a previous way of doing things. And there can be symbiotic things, right? Where you can extend and deepen institutional forms of social empowerment that also, that, that involve the state, that involve you know, normal uh, modes of so- civil society, but also solve problems that the elites pros, right? Non-reformist reforms is how we, we would think of these, right? There are all types of ways to strategically try to transform places that are then, that we then realize there's some anti-capitalist potential and then seize upon it and then immobilize within it. Yeah, and I think that's a, I think that's a great segue for getting into our first example of what I think as a, as a kind of opportunity for uh, enacting real utopia or an inspiration. And that is, you know, what I've been conceiving of as a, as a type of guerrilla tactics um, for resistance uh, of the imposition of capital. And, and namely, the, the story of Sidewalk Labs and their, their grand ambitions to lay claim over a whole district in Toronto and kind of turn it into this, this smart city showcase, right? This like test bed for experimental technology and technocratic administration, um, a, a way of producing, you know, streams of valuable urban data, uh, built on top of even more valuable real estate that this company, Sidewalk Labs, which I think our listeners are probably well aware of, but give a little bit of uh, a brief overview, right? Like Sidewalk Labs as a subsidiary of Alphabet, so sister company of Google, you know, it's their urban innovation arm. You know, back in, back in like October of 2018, you know, they laid out this, this, this proposal and this grand plan to turn part of Toronto into a kind of, uh, you know, into a Google-topia, into a smart city, into their own version of urban utopia built from scratch. And I also think people might be aware as well that during this kind of the 18-month process from the announcement to this plan to its eventual abandonment, uh, you know, it was this magnet of controversy, right? It was, and it, it was never met with people 
um, simply acquiescing, simply laying down and letting sidewalk labs roll over them, roll over this district, build it up into their own version or vision of what they want. This project was something that people were really watching really closely because it did have potential to be this kind of harbinger for what the smart city looks like, right? Um, for what might be copied and pasted in other places around the world. And it would have inspiration for other companies uh, to try to do very similar things in other, t uh, other places around the world. You know, fast forward to May of this year, Sidewalk Labs announced that they were canceling their plans. They were, they were, they were leaving. They were packing up their bags and they were getting out of Toronto. Uh, under the guise, of course, of COVID-19, you know, they, they, they were saying, oh, you know, uh, th there's, there's economic depression going on, you know, the real estate market is crashing, uh, it's really difficult to, to build now under these conditions. And so because of all these external factors, right, namely a, a world historic global pandemic and an accompanying economic depression, um, they were saying, sorry, Toronto, but we got to go, right? We're, we're, we got to cancel mm -hmm. these plans. We just can't, we can't do it anymore. But anybody that was paying even like slight attention to this project over the course of, it, of its 18 month uh, lifespan knows that it was met constantly and persistently with criticism, uh, with, the, with activism, with organization, with backlash from the public, from the people that actually lived in Toronto, from the people that lived around that area, um, and people that were supporting these actions around the world. I mean, this is a case where I, I don't think it's wrong to say that this is a case where the best laid plans of Sidewalk Toronto, of Sidewalk Labs, were defeated. They were denied by an organized social movement, right? Not, not, not a social movement per se, but just an organized public who looked at their claims um, a, a, around designing this urban utopia, which they saw as an opportunity to design and govern uh, a city, an urban district, um, according to their vision. And instead, what the citizens of Toronto saw was a familiar strategy of corporations seizing sovereignty from democratic institutions. Normally, in such circumstances, the corporations win, right? There's some backlash, right. there's some resistance, you know, people show up at the public forums and they express their grievances and what they don't like. And eventually, you know, the corporation says, oh, we're taking that all into consideration. And eventually their plan moves forward in some in some fashion. The inspiration that I take from uh, the Sidewalk Toronto um, and the, the, the activist public there is that this is a case where they were actually able to deny capital its plans, right? They were able to deny the imposition of Sidewalk Labs into their city. As a real utopia or as a alternative and a framework for thinking about alternatives, right? The path from here would it also involve not simply kicking out the company, right? But now getting to the point where 
maybe it's time to take back decision-making and control over decisions that this company was gaining the right to and re-examining what should be allowed to be monetized, commodified, offered for profit, offered for sale. I mean, at one point, right, they were thinking about using an expansive data apparatus to figure out what would be the optimal rate for pricing not only parking strips or parking spots, but also figuring out like what strips of land could then also be turned into new parking spots, right? And at what point you might see a declining return on this new form of data, I don't know, extraction, surveillance, whatever we want to call it. Those sorts of things could go in the opposite way too, right? Where instead of proclaiming that uh, we'll let this private company decide to carve out more and more of whatever we have it into a profitable enterprise or into rents, um, taking this opportunity to say like some of this stuff is just never going to be back on sale again. Or if it is going to be in some revenue stream, then deciding what's going to be done with the money. And instead of it going to Sidewalk Labs, to Alphabet, to a fund that pays off the consulting fees of Alphabet's consultants, uh, it could be money that is in one way or another used to solve real problems and concerns that the individuals who live there have or to do whatever they want with it, right? Whether that would be to just feed it back into a municipal system, give it to themselves as a payout. It doesn't really matter, but it should be their decision to be done with. And these sort of fights to push these cities out, they are not, they don't yield usually the institutions that or that right might point to as uh, necessary for social empowerment, but they can give us insight into what can and can't, right? Can it be that in the act of resisting such a move, we can then ferment or catalyze something that takes even more control back instead of just result being a defensive move? Or is it that other moves need to be done in conjunction, right? It Right. Would that only happen if at the same time organizers simply decided that they were going to take control of some street and block it off until those demands were met? Or would it be realized if they had to go through more formal modes of political participation? Or would it be met if they were able to figure out ways to just disrupt it and like have people illegally park, park there or not? You know, there are all sorts of logics mm -hmm. and strategies that can be considered. But I think, again, back to Wright's point, right, the point you got to experiment with them in, in the first place to figure out. Because the goal is not to simply win these battles, right, to, but to put us in better position where we're not on the defense, right? And eventually at some point, instead of expanding potential, we're transforming uh, nodes and structures inside of this system. Exactly. Yeah, because the, the point of striving for real utopias is to, is, uh, is to one hand, not fall into this trap of all or nothing, right? To look at something like the, the public's denial of sidewalk labs and be like, oh, you know, that, that's, just a, that's, that's just a negative effort, right? They didn't actually mm -hmm. achieve anything. They just stopped something from happening. But that in itself is an achievement, Right. And the, the point there is that not only have, do we have to celebrate that those wins when they do arise, but as you were saying, we got to channel that energy into pushing our advantage, right, into not being purely on the defensive, but being on the offensive. And I, I see Sidewalk Toronto business as uh, or the, the, the case example as a as an example of also pushing against 
in a really necessary way a particular ideology, right? And it re- and in a way of because uh, fighting for real utopias does require us in the current circumstance that we're in sabotaging the efforts of those who would erect barriers to alternatives, right? And that is exactly what a company like Sidewalk Labs is trying to do, right? And in trying to create their version of utopia, they're also trying to erect barriers to other ideas of what's possible and what can be done. And, you know, on an ideological level, I saw this as a, as a win um, and as a kind of denial of this idea and the power of technological determinism, right? Because these tech companies rely so much on this idea that they are simply conduits for the spirit of progress, right? That they that they are simply acting at the command of some like autonomous force of nature that can, you know, moves on its own accord, you know, innovation, progress, technology, not only does it is it this autonomous force of nature, therefore it can only be deterred from its forward march by by even greater acts of God. And we can see this in the way that Sidewalk Labs framed their cancellation of the project because they didn't give any acknowledgement of the public resistance and backlash. They didn't give any acknowledgement that their project was denied by activists and by an organized public. Instead, they blamed it all solely on external circumstances, right? A global Mm -hmm. pandemic, economic depression. In other words, these kinds of like acts of God, right? But But the reality of the circumstance is that their project failed because of internal factors, right? Active rejection by an organized uh, public. So we, we, we can't even take at face value their own framing of the project and of its failure because even their framing of the failure is designed to not give any inches to the power of the people to actually make choices and decide what's going to to happen here. You know, I I think about that uh, famous blog post that Mark Andreessen had in the beginning, you know, in the middle of the year. Exactly. It's time to build, you know, Mm. what, but what, what he really means here is two things, right? First, we have to build systems and institutions that align with my particular set of interest, right? My being, his, Mark Andreessen's particular mm-hmm. set of interests. And second, anybody who isn't on board with those goals for what should be built has to be dismissed as unserious, has to be treated as enemies of progress and innovation. The subtext there, of course, is that what they really mean is that it's time to build what I say we must build. And thinking about what inspiration we draw from Sidewalk Toronto, It's the fact that we cannot be afraid to reflect those same accusations back at people like Mark Andreessen, right? And declare that they have no right to make choices on our behalf. And not only do they have no right, but as they, as the uh, people in Toronto showed, we also have the power to deny them the ability to make choices and to build things um, on our behalf for their own benefit.
you know, I think comes right back to, uh, to our boy Eric Olin Wright, right? Where here, this puts us in good position. You know, we can think about social empowerment. We think about having a, a plurality of institutions instead of some unitary theological theory. You know, we should keep our eyes on the prize, which is socialism, communism, you know, and so on and so forth. But we need to, at this point, in this phase, right, be thinking about plurality of institutions, about heterogeneity, you know, here, instead of, you know, thinking about these pressure points, thinking about ways to bring in people, thinking about, you know, again, with, you know, sidewalk labs, also another thing that could be, could come up is not simply like how to take that moment of resistance and, and, and scale it up into more, but also like what did sidewalk labs do that seemed to like uh, skate by, uh, establish bulwark to outside forces taking power, you know? Is it possible that if uh, citizens try to propose their own alternatives to its attempts to, you know, take over certain public services or take out of the states and the bureaucracy's hands certain decisions that it would be accepted? Or is it simply because, you know, it's a private company and that's why they were allowed to do it? Well, you know, those are good questions to ask and think about why it is that, like, it can be done or what can be solely done by sidewalks and what can't be done or can be done by like public sidewalks that is not motivated by the same things, but it could still be part of a system of, you know, plurality of institutions, right? Where we're thinking about cooperatives, where we're thinking about participatory budgeting, when we're thinking about local projects and regional projects that, you know, try to change the social economy, when we're thinking about when it's appropriate to give the state more power in controlling finances or into intervening in the marketplace, when it makes sense for us to think about the way in which corporations should be blocked from certain spaces, uh, the way in which we're thinking about how finances and capital can be specifically controlled. All of this can be done in ways that undermine capitalism's dominance in our complex web of relationships and institutions inside of this economic hybrid. And so long as we keep doing it, then there is still like a horizon of possibility to achieve uh, what it is that we want to, right? That locally oriented uh, victories and fights, community-based stuff may not seem to be inherently political, right? But as Wright talks about, just because it doesn't directly confront political power doesn't mean that it isn't, right? These show you and your community and everyone else that it is possible to build another world uh, whether it's in your apartment complex by organizing or whether it's in your workplace by organizing or in your community, right? And force new spaces, new institutions, uh, new modes of interaction to be made out of them if they're not already, uh, if there's not already a space for what it is that these groups of people are proposing, right? All of that is very powerful and just as powerful as getting some top-down policy uh, that magically changes things, but obscures the puppeteering and the and the and the hand waving that's going on, right? Because social empowerment is not simply about making sure that people are constantly doing things, but also like could be thought of as like a part of a political education program, right? In which by having a direct experience, in which you're part of something that's larger, in which you take power from something that seems larger, in which you defend something that's larger in which you build something, right? These are all ways to help undermine the hold that capitalism has on our imagination, right? And that is like the ultimate project with real utopianism. That's right. We cannot put
put all of our hopes either on one particular project, right? So because again, if we put too much pressure on one thing to achieve everything, then we'll achieve nothing, right? Because it will collapse, it will crumble under that pressure, it won't meet our expectations. I think you really nailed something there as well. This idea that you know we look at examples like Sidewalk Toronto as a, a, a real kind of learning by demonstrating that, as you said, it's possible to build a better world. It's possible to that alternatives are possible. Uh, and that in itself is a utopian sentiment nowadays in these mm-hmm. times and you know in this age. Nowadays. Whatever, yeah, whatever, whatever trite, whatever cliche, you know, but it is, right? It it's a utopian sentiment to even just be able to to recognize that something that like what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism, right? Which is summed up in this idea, the famous quote, which I'm sure we've quoted before on this podcast mm-hmm. from Margaret Thatcher, that there is no alternative, right? That's the mantra here. We can we can even see how that idea of there is no alternative, that is the the rallying call of, you know, something like Silicon Valley. That is the rallying call of Sidewalk Labs, right? That there is no, I mean, e- even the quote unquote thought leaders in Silicon Valley, they don't even talk about techno-utopianism that much anymore, right? Like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. they used to talk about techno-utopianism all the time. You know, that's how they frame their ideas as they were achieving utopian dreams. But now what they do is they talk about sober truths, right? They only talk about what must be done, what has to be done, what we are already doing. They, they no longer talk about why, they only talk about how. Not why they're doing their thing, but how they're going to do it. And that's because they, you know, they're at this point where they don't need to expend that energy waging that war of influence, right? They, because they now hold the high ground. Uh, mm-hmm. So instead, they focus on chanting, there is no alternative. They're chanting that technological determinism, right? That mm-hmm. they are simply conduits for progress. We look at what happened in Sidewalk Toronto and si- with Sidewalk Labs, and we have to realize that the the people in Toronto's, you know, these guerrilla tactics against Sidewalk was not simply against that company, but by extension, their parent company, Alphabet, right, which is one of the most powerful, richest tech corporations ever to exist. And what they did is they demonstrated that even a behemoth of that size can be stopped in its tracks. It can be forced to regroup, reevaluate its strategy. Now, obviously, I don't think either of us are under any delusion that Sidewalk Labs or any number of companies with similar aims uh, won't try again. Right. They, they will try again. They will regroup. They will come back at us again. What we learn from Sidewalk Labs, what we learn from Occupy Wall Street, what we learn from the movement for black lives. Right. What we learn from these kinds of demonstrations of people to actively deny the, the kind of forward momentum of the institutions already in power to actively call for something better, that is a form of real utopianism. 
And I think that also brings us to thinking then next about another sort of burgeoning moves that have taken place in a very different system, in a very different part of the world. We can probably, you know, we'll probably throw in an ad from our uh, SoftBank and Huawei sponsors here. SoftBank is a proud sponsor of this machine. <laughs> We are talking about uh, China's fight with ants, with the ant group. And the whole and, fintech industry in general. Right, which I think is really interesting to think about the role fintech is playing here and in the West more generally as a sort of way to further penetrate what consumers by providing them more ways to spend their money and more ways to get assets to gamble on the money being spent or to create bullshit speculative devices that come out of it, right? I feel like that is more or less the positioning that fintech is taking here without much resistance. Whereas, you know, in China, there's a conflict emerging where the concern is, okay, is this going to fuck with the really tight central control that we have on the economy, right? Having our large digital central bank plan that the People's Bank of China uh, was envisioning going to be contradicted with uh, allowing the Ant Group, right, to have an IPO raise tens of billions of dollars in capital and use that to expand private control over parts of the financial system, which we deem as integral to our country's national security. I think that with Financial Times had a good report on Ant's threat to China's centralized control, where, you know, they talked about, quote, uh, but from Beijing's perspective, right, a fintech future can seize one big risk. Authorities may have to surrender too much control, both to algorithms and to companies such as Ant. And that a Chinese state banker told the newspaper after the suspension of the IPO last week uh, that the regulator's attitude is really simple. If I don't understand you and can't control you, I won't let you roam. And that this also is connected to Xi Jinping declaring in 2017 that financial stability was so critical to China that it would be considered part of the national security and its national interest, right? Uh, I think that, you know, this one way or another speaks to potential, but to step back also and remember what we were talking about, about the way in which various economic systems have, you know, hybrid, right, with China, right, the reasons why it's conflicting with private concentration of capital here in a way that United States might not is because it undermines the, the very specific statist economic structure, right, decisions over financial markets, decisions over the currency, decisions over the way in which the economy is tightly guided, directed, are the purview of the state and not of the private sector, the market, or state enterprises, right, even. That this has led to China over the years, for example, after a peer-to-peer lending boom, uh, cracking down, right? You know, in 2016, before this, uh, the crackdown, right, there were about 6,000, you know, peer-to-peer lenders. Uh, Now, they're about 29. I mean, that 29 is still doing huge numbers, about 115 billion, and Beijing is still trying to get the money, right? I think that it's clear that this is an issue where where China has decided that it's going to prioritize institutions and relations, allow its structure to be dominant, right? It's the, the option, I think, is very clear for them, right? For a country that has taken great pains to build a firewall between it and the West so that it can develop its own tech companies that are still firmly under its own control and embedded with its own, within its own system and at the whims or the didacts of its own you know, state uh, regulators, 
it's not going to allow you know financial firms especially to you know fuck up the capital markets right and allow the country to lose control over one of the things that have been integral to it isolating itself and in creating competitors to the west that would have otherwise dominated its markets in one way or another bring us back up a little bit to a more general sense so like that first example of sidewalk toronto i you know i frame that as a kind of uh, a guerrilla tactics for real utopianism, right? It is showing this kind of like democratic power and potential. And the second case, which you've brought us to, um, is, you know, I, I think it's showing a more kind of a state strategy, right? So guerrilla tactics versus a state strategy for actually bringing, bringing to Hill, um, as the FT put it, China's tech sector, right? And, and, and not only their tech sector, but their, the fintech. So this kind of confluence of the financial and the technological sectors, right? These two sectors that are oftentimes seen as these like untouchable cornerstones of the global economy, but also are sectors that are, uh, you know, have such hyper concentration and consolidation of capital and power, having some of the largest market capitalizations and market values, um, companies with the largest wells of, of seemingly infinite resources to draw from. I have been following closely the this kind of emergence of these new and, and very comprehensive, you know, what are being framed as antitrust regulations in China. I've been following it closely because like the more I read about it, the more it seems like projecting myself into an alternative universe where it's like, (laughs) it's like, holy shit, that's possible. Like, so like not only can a state bring under control uh, these massive industries and sectors, but can do so in a way that is like really swift and decisive As the FT themselves put it, quote, the striking thing about the guidelines is how comprehensive they are. So, you know, not 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 in this like really piecemeal way of like, oh, you know, we we need to ask them to we need to ask Ant and Alibaba and JD.com, you know, these massive industries within a market of China that by many respects dwarfs the market uh, equivalents in, in the U.S., right? I mean, these companies are larger, their user bases are larger, their revenues are larger, like they are playing in a market that they've grown so out of control within this market. And to watch the Chinese state regulators, the Chinese Bank and Insurance Regulatory Commission, um, the state market regulation uh, agency there, like to watch these state regulators step in and just say enough is enough. As the vice president of the China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission put it, that financial technology, quote, did not change the nature of finance. All kinds of financial activities must be subject to regulation. Businesses must follow the same practices, rules, and risk management requirements as long as they conduct financial operations of the same kind. And I think that sentiment there, that, you know, it's not only just this like, Uh, emergence of these really comprehensive individual regulations and guidelines. But to me, it represents like a new and seemingly unthinkable approach to even governing fintech, to governing finance and technology than seemed possible, right? Because what they're doing Mm -hmm. is that they're denying, they're not only denying 
these companies the ability to grow as the vice president of that commission put it right if if i don't understand you and can't control you i won't let you grow that sentiment mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. utopian yeah. by any measure right right <laughs> Could you imagine anything like that happening in the US? So many debates in the US about like, you know, ad if an ad if an item about if antitrust is desirable or even possible. Um to them watch a uh, a state government step in and say not only is it desirable and possible but we're doing it right now right we're we're, right. we're not going to ramp up to it we're doing it immediately there was that quote in there by Liang about the vice president of that commission about how just because it's technology involved in finance doesn't mean that it changes the nature of finance right that sort of rejection of the exceptionalism and that exceptionalism mm-hmm. has allowed you know tech firms to embed themselves pretty deeply in uh the way that various countries various economies operate and make resilient as a result a lot of uh the relations of the institutions or the social structures that we might want to take over disrupt or undermine in our quest towards um achieving socialism right that the move here to reject fintech as some uh exceptional category and instead as finance that uses technology is important because like as they talk about right then you would see the ant group's ability to use technology consumer data to find borrowers that other lenders could as really just a clever way of outsourcing its risk or figuring out a clever way of taking on people who are riskier than others as as borrowers um and then figuring out some other device some other function some other way to absorb that risk or to outsource it the technology then needs to be thought of as not like as a really truly innovative system but as just a technical system that introduces the capacity for bypassing laws uh, bypassing traditions bypassing regulations bypassing social interactions or uh social structures bypassing institutions uh bypassing all the sorts of forces that typically mitigate reduce or hamper uh the ability of you know private firms to be nimble or to outpace or to undermine or to consolidate their own power right i think that that's an attitude that also can be teased out and needs to be thought of much in the way that like you know the resistance to sidewalk labs and what didn't didn't happen should be teased out and thought of and used to glean insight we should also glean insight into like the way that the the chinese have been um uh not doing what we've been doing right <laughs> uh, you know in the united states one of the most frustrating things is the way in which tech firms are always held to be exceptional even when all they're fucking doing is figuring out how to progress labor laws to the 1920s even when all they're doing is figuring out ways to defraud like the vast majority of their investors and get early investors a huge return on their product it is frustrating and i think a huge barrier also to our progress in here the exceptionalism right so long as those people are present that image of themselves so long as the society believes it so long as we're taught to believe it right it's going to be hard to dislodge tech companies from places where they have no business being and i honestly think that 
to some degree, the exceptionalism may be used cynically or consciously to also prevent the sort of solidarity and social empowerment that might otherwise arise. Because if you're going up against a tech company, like you talked about, then it's just like an act of God, you know? A tech company mm-hmm. represents the natural conclusion and the natural endpoint of capitalist development, right? Technology has the force of history behind it, has the force of economics behind it, has the force of innovation behind it. And to oppose it is useless and futile or ludicrous and a ludite move. Instead of recognizing that technology is a technical system, a political system that is being used by specific groups of people to prevent other groups of people from undermining their position and undermining their ability to unequally and unevenly distribute resources um, yeah. in our society. The, 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 the ludicrous Luddite is, is one of my AKAs. You know, I'm not yeah, going yeah. Ghostface Killer here. I'm, you know, yes. <laughs> yeah, actually, John Brown was the first person to use that pen name. It's a title that gets uh, passed down to each person willing to do what needs to be done. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands will heed the call to our trumpet. Did you bring a trumpet? Anybody have a trumpet? Smashing that exceptionalism is so important. And I feel like, you know, that's a core inspiration that I'm drawn from looking at you know, the Chinese government's swift action against, you know, they're, they're striking these decisive blows against corporate dominism uh, in the economy, in the fintech industry, uh, you know, they're, and they're, by doing so, you know, they're, they're striking a blow against this exceptionalism that a company like uh, Uber, uh, they're not a taxi company, they're a technology company, so they don't deserve the right, you know, the same laws or regulations. But we see this with, you know, with Airbnb and hotels, Netflix and entertainment, right? And Ant was doing it too. You know, uh, leading up to their IPO, uh, Ant self-consciously dropped the term Ant Financial. They dropped the term financial from their name mm-hmm. because they didn't want to be associated with being a financial institution. They wanted to be a technology company, right? The ability of state regulators to see through that nonsense and not only see through it, but be like, all right, you've gone too far. Oh, fuck. I can't believe you've done this. Like the United States, China had let its tech and finance sector grow out of control. It was relying on these like soft touches and hand slaps and the hopes that these companies would get their act together. And they simply didn't. And I think it's hilarious that like one of the breaking points was Jack Ma, uh, you know, CEO of Alibaba, you know, involved with faithful member of the Communist Party. (laughs) They're like, bam, get back. (laughs) That's right. Because he because he stepped out, you know, Uh, like like a couple like a week or two before. Um, the Chinese government will start rolling out these, you know, these new regulations and they, you know, coinciding with the suspension of Ant's IPO, which again would have been the largest IPO in history at $37 billion. That basically Jack Ma, you know, in a, in a speech, 
he was talking shit, you know, basically being like, yeah. we don't need the Chinese state. You know, in mm -hmm. fact, they're impeding our growth, <laughs> our growth. They have such antiquated views of risk control and risk management. And they it's fucking so got his ass. You know? <laughs> they got his ass like a week later. It's so funny. And I think also this is important to tie back quickly to, to Olin Wright's conception of interstitial uh, transformation, right? Where... In this instance, right, the interstitial transformation would have been towards a more capitalist modality, right, in the hybrid structure, right? None of those individual moves were what brought on what seemed to be a crisis from the state, from the perspective of the Chinese state, but that in culmination of the push for indigenous innovation, in culmination of the national policy, the industrial policy of creating that great firewall to focus on building tech, inside of China in, in culmination to all these moves that were done by the state in its own interest and also in conjunction with capitalists in the interests of the state created pressure and eventually momentum and a breaking point where a transformation seemed to be inevitable, right? Where it seemed to be that fintech and technology specifically was going to then come in and usurp or undermine a core stability of or a constellation of points that were stable that allowed China to control financial markets and capital markets, for example. But instead, they beat that back, right? And that's an interesting thing to think about also as we are thinking about Olin Wright's thoughts in this essay about the new system can be born within the, within the old system, as was the case with capitalism. It, we should move for that to be the case with socialism, right? So what moves can be done to prevent that sort of swatting back, right? Where the state can simply go, oh, no, 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 no. And then just like get it out, you know? And, yeah. and not only get it out, but then spawn, as you talk about what they're characterizing as antitrust legislation that will more or less close the door on this sort of thing happening again. Because now they're coming around with the fucking whack-a-mole hammer saying, all right, you're not a tech company. You're not a tech company. You're not a tech company. Oh, you're a tech company? Break that shit up, you know, or give us the data. You can't have the data, you know. That will take the wind out of the sails out of uh, a core part of the attempt to do a capitalist transformation of the Chinese system. So what lessons maybe people can think about or reflect on? What lessons can be gleaned from the Chinese capitalist attempt to transform the system and the failure that we're now seeing, not only now, but probably for the foreseeable future at this rate, because Jack Ma's got way too fucking ambitious, way too cocky, and came at a moment where I think China has clear-eyed view of what happens when you let self-labeled tech companies dominate a core part of your political economy. I'm, I'm thinking of a statement here by Bo Zhuang, who's an economist at, uh, at TC Lombard, which is like an in independent investment research firm. And in response to um, or commenting on these new regulations, he said, quote, the likes of Ant Group have grown by so much that the government now sees them as a drag on rather than a driver of the economy. Yeah, I mean, that, that is such a radical shift in a like governing mentality. Right. And the point here is obviously not that like, oh, China is doing anti-capitalist praxis, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> because it, it is still state capitalism, right? They're doing mm -hmm. it as a, as a way to emphasize the state part of mm -hmm. that state capitalist hybrid organization right. um, mm -hmm. that, that you talked about. The point here for us and the inspiration that we must draw in thinking as real utopians is looking at that as not only demonstrating something that's possible, which seemed 
wholly impossible, right? Just the ability for state regulators to step in with a strong fist and deny that exceptionalism to say that these excuses no longer hold water. And not only do they no longer hold water, but you've stepped out. We're reining you back in. We're bringing you the hill, right? You got, you got to bend the knee to us. <laughs> the radical potential here is to look at not only that that's possible, but then how can we harness that for, as you said, build the new system from within the current system? China in of itself, like you said, state capitalist, right? What's going on with the tensions between the state and the capitalist system? And why did the state end up winning? You know, of course, they have very different realities, legal realities, economic, political, social, cultural realities, or considerations or limitations or openings, right? As a result of the fact that it's just a different country. But also, I think there can be larger lessons gleaned from it, even if like we can't immediately tease them out, others may be able to. And these are places that attention should be focused on. You know, you know, the United States has powerful tech companies with smaller user bases that are ingratiated in the consumer side of the market and not yet key part of how the state is running things or the state's control of daily life in the way that they might be in China. What is preventing political resolution of the issue that seems to be emerging where tech companies, their financiers are eating up more and more of the political economy. Is it because they're aligned and their interests are aligned? Is it because the battle was lost a long time ago? Is it because people are asleep at the wheel? Is it because there are certain limitations or quirks in the United States legal code? Is it because there are little considerations about the way the United States culture is? Is it because the realities of the politics or the, the economic, the social structures here? These are all questions that have to be considered and thought of much in the way that you would if you're trying to understand why China's transformation failed or is instead tending towards another way we should be constantly thinking about why it is that we not only have a peculiar historical outcome, but why it is moving in one direction or the other, because that's the only way that we can frustrate it or undermine it or, you know, co-opt it or in one way or another, figure out where we stand in relation to it and how we're going to open up more space for these alternatives and for these anti-capitalist potentials and for these transformations at various levels of the structure. That's right. You know, and I, I think that's a great place to, to bring our episode to a close. Uh, you know, there, there's so much more to consider, so much more to talk about. And, and importantly, right, so right. many more examples uh, of real utopias, um, real utopias for, uh, material that for both materialist analysis and radical potential for us to draw from, right? Right. We'll be uh, talking about some examples, I think, in Europe in the Patreon. You know, they've been doing some stuff that is, uh, if you want to learn more about, join us and subscribe um, to this machine kills where you can hear more about it. But I think that Europe is a very exciting. A battleground if they get their shit together, right? But only if they get their shit together. <laughs> only if they get their shit together. That's right. That's right. So join us uh, in the Patreon episode for more discussion of some other examples and what lessons um, we have to draw from them. Um, so subscribe, patreon.com slash this machine kills. And uh, we will see y'all later this week in the premium episode. <laughs>